I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Coming up on today's show, the continuing trend of high cases and hospitalizations keeps Mississippi's health care system under stress. Then how the state's second largest school system is preparing for the new school year. Plus, in today's book club, a real ghost town in Mississippi is the setting for smack dab in the middle of maybe. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves is calling on hospitals to implement surge plans to make room for coronavirus patients in their facilities. For the second consecutive day, the Mississippi Department of Health reported over 1,500 New cases of the coronavirus, high hospitalization rates associated with the virus also continue to press the health care system. Governor Tate Reeves says the central region of the state only has two ICU beds available, which creates a real danger for anyone in need of critical medical care. Today will be a really bad day to have a car wreck in Jackson. It'd be a bad day to have an accident. It'd be a really bad day if you're in central Mississippi, for something to go wrong. And oh, by the way, it's a really bad day to have COVID and need to go into the hospital. I wish that West Central region was the only region where there was a problem. It's not. Keep in mind that every ICU bed that is available is not created equal. There are facilities throughout our state that have open ICU beds. But the level of treatment are not going to be the same in those hospitals than in our level one facilities. Health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says he's not surprised by the continued rise in hospitalizations considering the trend of high cases. He says it is alarming is the percentage of COVID patients occupying ICU beds. If we look at uh, hospital numbers, we're continuing to see increasing hospitalizations. Again, not a big surprise. We know that hospitalizations and deaths both lag case, case counts, so we'll continue to see increases most likely. And uh, we also are seeing um, significant ICU capacity strains. We have 293 COVID patients in our intensive care. Forty percent of all intensive care patients are coronavirus. 
That's absolutely astounding. Just a week or so ago, it was 30%. I don't know how far we can go until we're absolutely going to be outside of standards of care and going into crisis care because we just can't take care of the burden. Reeves is calling on a collective effort from hospital administrations and the general public to keep the health care system from being overwhelmed. If you can surge ICU beds, now's the time to surge. I also said that if you are deferring COVID-19 patients, we are going to look at eliminating elective surgeries on a facility-by-facility basis. Not because we want to, not because we think that means every patient in the state will get the best quality care, but because we're gonna, it's going to be necessary. But what I want you as my fellow Mississippians to know is that's just one part of the equation. The question that remains to everyone out there is are all of us going to do our part? You know, the president spoke yesterday. The president said that he believes that it's patriotic to wear a mask. So what I ask my constituents is this. If you love the president, join him, be patriotic, and wear a mask. If you don't like the president, then just wear a mask to spite him. Same with me. If you think I'm doing a good job on COVID or good job as, as governor, I ask you to wear a mask in public. Stay socially distanced, six feet apart. Don't gather in large groups. If you think I'm worthless and doing a horrible job, well, why don't you just prove me wrong? Wear a mask. Stay socially distanced. As the state inches closer to a crisis state, Dr. Dobbs is transparent about what will happen to the level of care if hospitals are pushed to that extent. I'm going to be really clear here because it's like we're in this cycle of preparing in doubt, preparing in doubt. Crisis care means that your loved one is going to be in a big room with 100 other people and you're not and you can't go see them. Right. We're going to talk, you know, army style barracks sort of scenarios. We're talking about not being able to get the kind of doctor that you need. We're talking about getting care in a tent, those sorts of things. We're talking about having to make a decision about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. There is a limited capacity to do things. And even with federal resources, there's, there's not going to be a, 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 you know, some salvation from on high that's going to come get us out of this problem. What's going to get us out of this problem is the people to quit getting coronavirus. And part of it's going to be not denying reality. Part of it's going to be doing those simple things of six feet in a mask. And also, people don't need to be socializing. As he has said previously, Governor Reeves indicated residents let their guard down as other issues rose to the surface in late May and early June, leading to the current elevation of cases. We were all talking about just about nothing but COVID in March, in April, in May. And then there became a lot of hot issues across the country. There became protests, and there became issues that were being discussed and debated here in our home state. And for weeks on end, no matter what anyone else said, the coronavirus, COVID-19, the China virus, whatever you want to call it, certainly wasn't ignored by those of us that were in the fight, but it certainly fell off the forefront of the conversation. People let down their guard. The virus started spreading. We now are probably on the second, if not the third, maybe even the fourth iteration of what happened in late May and early June.
one of the statewide issues receiving significant attention last month was the legislature's vote to remove the 1894 flag. The commission formed by that bill met for the first time yesterday. Speaker Philip Gunn addressed the commission on the legacy ahead of them. People are going to look at this new flag for years to come. And, they're going to, and you can take pride in knowing that this is what you did. When that thing goes up from now on, you can say, hey, I did that. And your grandchildren can hear this say, hey, my, my grandparent participated in the creation of that flag. The first meeting didn't include the appointees assigned to Governor Tate Reeves. Reeves says managing the pandemic is his top priority and questions the constitutionality of legislative leaders' decision to call the meeting. We will make our appointments whenever we choose to make those appointments. Um, I will tell you that there was uh, a meeting that was held today. Uh, But, you know, in, in, in Mississippi, we have what's called a constitution. And in that constitution, we have a guarantee of a separation of powers. I don't know under what constitutional authority legislative leaders can call a meeting of an executive branch agency. In fact, there is no authority to do that. Quite frankly, I don't know under what power certain legislative leaders can they make even, even make appointments to said group. Coming up, how the state's second largest school system is preparing for the new school year. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. I'm Karen Brown. Reaching every corner of the capital city, Jackson Public Schools is the state's second largest school district. With over 50 school sites and nearly 24,000 scholars, the district has many factors to consider when preparing for the new school year. Superintendent Dr. Eric Green says his team's plan is based on feedback from the community and the health safety guidelines of public officials. Well, yes, um, the the entire plan um, is built on the uh, fuel and, and based on feedback from several um, stakeholders uh, across Jackson Public Schools. So we've heard uh, specifically from parents, specifically from scholars, um, spent a lot of time talking with educators, with school leaders, um, with um, our, our what we call the School Reopening Advisory Committee. Um, and um, and we've also just been, you know, watching a lot of the guidance that's um, that's going around just nationally, and some of the best thinking about kind of how to how to support young people, but also how to how to um, do that in in the way that's that's pretty safe. I will say too that um, uh, we're also pretty mindful of the feedback that we've gotten from parents as to, you know, whether they wanted to return their young people uh, into an uh, in-person setting and, or not. Um, and, of course, again, our, our school leaders and, our, and our, our educators as to what we could do with excellence. Let me ask you this. When you, when you talked to the parents, was there a predominant feeling that, that they were in favor of sending the kids back into the school building itself or having distance learning? No, actually, um, it, the the predominance of what we're hearing, both from 
surveys as well as uh, just emails and, and um, even parents that we talked to in a, in a panel discussion, um, m- more parents were saying, and, and I was a little surprised at this, but appreciated the feedback, more parents were saying that they uh, were selecting a virtual model. And we're actually encouraging families who can to educate their children virtually because um, that allows for more opportunities for us to distance and those who feel they, they have limited options in keeping them home and having them learn virtually and, and need to send them to in-person traditional um, school. What kind of concerns are there from your teachers, other educators, staff members at the school? Well, they're they're all over the place, and, and appropriately so. You know, everyone is learning and watching the data and around COVID cases, and and just you know, what's the latest guidance on how to keep safe and 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 how to use any of the personal protective equipment and the best ways to sanitize space. So, though there are questions and concerns about that sort of thing, um, there are also questions, and and I love my 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 team members for that. You know, as they're concerned about their own safety and their families in that, safety for the scholars, they're also concerned about their education, whether they're virtual or in person. They're asking questions about the technology that we're purchasing and will it be ready and, and you know, how will we ensure that they, they, the educators, are ready to utilize that technology and those tools so that they can really lead out and be the, the, the effective educators that they're called to be and that they want to be. How are we ensuring that young people are safe if they happen to be learning virtually? What's the kind of check-in protocol and expectation around, because we, we have a lot of um, programming and protocols around um, young people's safety and, and requirements to report issues around their safety and where we think that, that something might be happening outside of the school house. And so those things don't go away because we're now looking at uh, educating young people virtually or in a hybrid model. We still have those responsibilities and those, and, 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 and we take that readily. We, we want to make sure that our young people are safe. So all of those kinds of things are, are, are real for our educators. Um, and our school leaders are asking all the right questions. And they're also digging in with us to help us to create some of the solutions to those questions so that, you know, it's not just Eric Green or a few of us in the central office trying to think up how to, how to best educate young people, whether it's in any kind of model. We've got more and more of the smart people in our district thinking about these challenges and and helping us to create the solutions for them. If a situation arises where a child in a class or teacher, someone tests positive for COVID-19, that would require those who have been exposed to that person to quarantine, self-quarantine for 14 days. So that might affect the entire classroom, the entire bus, all the bus riders, um, cafeteria, if, if that's relatable. Are or is the district prepared to have those kids learn at home immediately? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so uh, if we ever come to the point where we have to close a school or several schools or the entire district, our our default will be to um, uh, to to take the entire district uh, into a virtual mode, uh, learning virtually, and so. Uh, as I was explaining earlier, you know, there's the the initial focus on the technology, but we've also utilized and, and de- developed other 
strategies and, and, and modes of providing learning experiences for young people. That could be printed packets. It could be our YouTube uh, channel, our dedicated YouTube channel, where we've already uploaded uh, read-alouds and, and mini-lessons and that sort of thing. It could be on our Comcast cable channel, where folks can um, – tune in and, and watch some lessons there and uh, on a particular schedule. And so it won't be, it won't be smooth if, you, if we were to go into a situation like that. There will be some hiccups and some challenges, but there are workarounds that we've already learned from our experiences back in the spring, and certainly that we're learning from other districts that have been uh, one-to-one for some time. Dr. Eric Green is the superintendent of Jackson Public Schools. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. Absolutely. Thank you. So appreciate the support and helping us to get the word out. As the trend of rising cases continue in the days leading up to the start of school whittle down, Dr. Dobbs wants residents to know there are risks for school-aged children. If we look at cases, we know that, that the 18 to 29-year-old age group is the, the area where we see the majority of cases at 10,126. But even younger folks are getting the virus that we know of. We have... 2,413 cases between the ages of 11 and 17. We have 990 between the ages of 6 and 10. We have 850 between the ages of 1 and 5. And we have 356 confirmed cases in children less than one year of age. So children do get it, but fortunately, mostly they don't get as ill. But they can get ill, and even when we checked this morning, there were two pediatric patients in intensive care from coronavirus in the state of Mississippi. So severe disease does happen. And unfortunately, even for the younger age group, we do see deaths. There have been 10 deaths from coronavirus in individuals between the ages of 18 and 29. And then just yesterday, we recorded the death of a 20-year-old from coronavirus in the state of Mississippi. We're going to try to get some more details on the the deaths in the younger folks so that people can have a better appreciation that there really is risk out there regardless of your age group. Governor Reeves says schools need to understand they cannot operate normally and districts need community buy-in, buy-in from schools to remain safe. We can't allow those facilities uh, to pretend as if the virus doesn't exist as it seems that many in society did a month ago. I mean, this has to be something where everyone is bought into the safety measures, the, the administrators, the teachers, Uh, The kids, to the extent possible, uh, all need to be bought in that we have to do things just a little bit differently over the next two or three or four months. At least one Mississippi school district is delaying the start of school. Yesterday, Madison County Schools announced it would not resume classes until September 3rd. Lawmakers are also weighing in on the school start issue. In a letter to the Mississippi Department of Education, Representative Tom Miles requests the department take up this issue immediately to consider the health of our children and teachers and delay the start date until after the 1st of September. Coming up in our book club, a real ghost town in Mississippi is the setting for smack dab in the middle of maybe. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a parent on the go, but still want to stay informed about your children's education, subscribe to Mississippi Education Connections podcast and listen on the go anytime, anywhere on your favorite podcast app. 
This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. About 40 miles north of Meridian is a ghost town called Electric Mills. There's not much left except some overgrown sidewalks and pillars. In today's book club, author Joe Watson Hackle takes readers to a fictionalized version of Electric Mills and her adventure smack dab in the middle of maybe. I was born at Keesler Air Force Base on the coast of Mississippi. And when I was 11, my family moved to the overgrown ghost town of Electric Mills, Mississippi. Electric Mills was once called the brightest town east of St. Louis. It had electricity at a time in the South when no one else did. The plant was powered by electricity from burning the wood. And so the houses were powered, the offices were powered. They have very modern houses, a hospital, a theater, even an ice cream parlor. And people came from Meridian and other areas to visit this booming magic of a town. But when all the timber was harvested, they literally picked up most of the buildings and moved them on somewhere else. So when my family moved to Electric Mills, it was pretty much deserted. There were a couple of houses, and I lived in one while our house was being built. But there was one thing that they couldn't pick up and take off, and that was the sidewalk. So I could walk forever on these thickly poured concrete sidewalks that took me past old home places. I could see the plantings that had been done in the front of the house, the hedges, the plantings that had been done in the back of the house, and the pillars that had once held up the houses. So for me, that was sort of a magical and mysterious place. And when I set out to write my novel, I very much wanted to bring readers to that place, to a fictionalized version of it, and introduce them to it. What ages does this book appeal to? Well, it's been interesting, Karen. The main character in the book is 12. But about half of the people that I've heard from have been grown-ups because the book combines my two favorite things, which are outdoor survival and outdoor adventure and an art mystery clue trail. The reader gets to solve the clue trail right alongside the main character, Cricket. What is the story around the clue trail? So the story takes readers on an adventure with 12-year-old Cricket, who runs away to live in an overgrown ghost town based on the real-life ghost town of Electric Mills, Mississippi, to try and solve a clue trail to find a secret room that may or may not exist. And this secret room is inspired by the real-life secret room that Mississippi artist Walter Anderson left when he died. I hope that your listeners, if they haven't been in the secret room, at least they've heard of it, because it is really a wonderful place. Does Electric Mills still exist in any form? It does. Electric Mills is on Highway 45 between Meridian and Columbus. And there's not a whole lot to see today unless you sort of know what you're looking for but you can still find the remnants of those thickly poured sidewalks. If you look a little bit, some of them have crumbled by now and some are covered by leaves, but they're there. And you can still see some of the toppled over pillars. There's still one house and you can see signs of this rich and vibrant town that once thrived in the area. I think you just inspired people to take a day trip (laughs) to, (laughs) to check it out. You said this book appeals to adults, but you wrote it geared towards kids. Why did you choose that age for your audience? I think there's really something wonderful about a coming-of-age story, and this is a coming-of-age story, because when you are 11, 12, 
you're really making up your mind about how you're thinking of the world. And it was important to me as a writer to really speak to that age group and insert some challenges and adventure, but also some positivity into that age group as they are, you know, they're making up their mind about how the world works. And one of the great things that I love about the um, middle grade genre is you always give the reader hope. There may be challenges, and there's certainly challenges and bumps along the way, but you lead the reader with a hopeful ending to help, you know, lead them into their next reading adventure. In writing it, I called on a lot of my own childhood experiences. The family dynamic in Cricket is fictionalized, but the connection with the outdoor world is very much a part of how I grew up. And I think there's something about Southerners. We have a unique connection to place, and I wanted to capture that in a book. And what better way to capture that than through the eyes of a 12-year-old girl who was surviving on her own and exploring and developing her own relationship to this place, the woods that she was initially quite scared of, but then really comes to love, as I came to love, the woods in the ghost town. Joe Watson Hackle is the author of Smack Dab in the Middle of Maybe. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.